You're listening to The Business Marketing Show, episode number 47. You can find us at businessmarketingshow.com on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Hi everyone, this is Ed K. Smith from The Business Marketing Show, and we have a special guest with us on the podcast today, Mr. John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au. John has a very successful YouTube channel discussing uh, automobiles and vehicles and what to purchase and what not to purchase. And uh, it's a very, very refreshing podcast and uh, YouTube channel compared to a lot of the auto um, coverages that I see and watch. So, uh, Thank you very much, John, for coming on the show. How are you? It's a pleasure, Ed. Thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our chat. Thank you very much. So I've been following your channel now for just on a year. Um, and one of the things you actually do is give advice to people about cars. It's the main focus is on the Australian marketplace for those who are listening, but uh, a lot of the, the cars are similar in Australia as they are overseas, so there is a bit of a cross-platform there. Uh, but unfortunately, I started watching your show about three weeks after I'd already purchased my car. <laughs> and uh, fortunately, I, f I feel I did all right because I got a Mazda SB25 um, that I'm very, very happy with and, and you seem to uh, like as well, gets good credentials on, on your website. But it was one of those things where I really, really wish I'd found the channel before I'd done all the, all the hard work because one of the processes that you have, not only in educating the marketplace on what's available and the pros and cons, but you also have a buyer service. So we'll go into that and we'll discuss uh, how that works and how people can contact you and all that sort of stuff. So, But going a few steps back... Because you've been involved in the broadcast world for a long time before you got into YouTube, so um, stepping back, say you know five or ten years before you got involved in doing YouTube, what was your your work history? Because you're in radio and, and various other things. So can you give us a bit of a, a back step on that, please, John? Absolutely. My sixty second bio is that I started out as a degree qualified mechanical engineer because I had always loved cars, and then I found out that I hated engineering so I kind of became a journalist and I did a lot of uh, writing in automotive magazines mainly for what was then known as ACP magazines, Street Machine, Motor, Wheels, magazines like that uh -huh. and then um, one day I got a call from Channel 9 and they said, hey, do you want to come on Current Affair and do this and if you did, what would you say? Uh, which I have subsequently learned is producers qualifying people that they can actually sting the uh, three sentences together contiguously without tripping over themselves. So <laughs> must have passed that audition of sorts. And then uh, one thing led to another. They kept inviting me back and I became uh, a current affairs motoring expert. And uh, then I moved to Channel 7. And about the same time as I moved to Channel 7, there was uh, an opportunity at Radio 2UE to become their motoring expert. Uh, so basically, I spent a lot of time on air, uh, you know, live on television and radio talking about cars and also in that pre-recorded news and current affairs space talking about cars. So it just became cars, cars, cars and cameras, cameras, cameras and microphones, 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 you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that would have been a, uh, a, a excellent experience to have to then 
migrate across to doing your own because you would have seen how it was done and you sort of knew a lot of the processes and uh, best practices of how to actually record video because a lot of people go onto a YouTube channel and start recording their stuff and it's pretty atrocious uh, and they often improve, hopefully. <laughs> but when you look back at some of the, the earlier work that people do, uh, you can see it's pretty rough. Um, and that's not a terrible thing because you've got to start somewhere. Absolutely. But I think the most important thing, Ed, is to have something to say right because mm. that fundamentally story is everything and then the rest of it is just technique uh, i was fortunate because you know when you when you hang around with enough um, camera crews news and current affairs camera crews they're used to working very very fast and very very dirty and producing a very high quality product and if you're interested in what they do the sound recordists and the cinematographers are more than happy to talk you through it, as are the producers and the reporters. So, um, for me, I was I was very lucky that I learnt the the black art of how to make television and how to make radio. So, there's a great deal of talent, I'd have to say, in those mediums. And anybody who's fortunate enough to be exposed to it on a regular basis really does uh, benefit from it. And I'm I'm quite pleased that that I had that opportunity. You know. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> So when you moved across into YouTube channels and producing your, your own stuff, when, when did that happen? What year was that? Well, I kind of migrated across to it gradually. I, I was the editor-in-chief of caradvice.com.au and we did a, a bunch of uh, video production for them. But we kind of did it the old-fashioned way by hiring a, a fairly high-priced news and current affairs crew and we produced it as if it were uh, network television stuff, which is probably not the way to go for this online thing. And then after I finished that assignment, I decided that there was an opportunity in the motoring space for people to deliver for me to deliver the information that I deliver differently than other motoring journalists because many motoring journalists and motoring journalism outlets have a commercial model that is predicated on advertising revenue from car companies. And if you've got that model, then you have to be very careful about what you say about those products. Mm. Otherwise, there's a fairly stern chat often between uh, somebody at an agency that buys the advertising space and somebody in your business who is uh, the sales director. And if a, an advertiser says, you've got to shut this clown up, because he's maligning our product, then that tends to be taken fairly seriously in most of those mediums. But my model doesn't depend on that, so I'm kind of freer to say what I want about the product. Yeah, I think that's an understatement, John. I think you're exceptionally free and have proven that in many of your episodes, which is one of the reasons I watch it because, you know, you call bullshit when there's bullshit. And, uh, and there has been, well, yeah, the auto industry is absolutely layered with it. Well, um, on that issue of um, on that issue of bullshit and calling it out, I think you've got to realise if you're thinking about stepping into the YouTube space or the podcast space, microphones and cameras are very astute at picking up bullshit. So if you are disingenuous, if you're spinning something up, if you're basically telling porkies about this and that, the audience will pick up on that very quickly. So one of the, the biggest recommendations I can give anybody who's thinking about stepping into that space is to be authentically yourself and say what you think because there's already enough bullshit to go around. Oh, absolutely. And so I, I watch probably at least half a dozen uh, uh, channels on YouTube about cars. And as you've stated quite often in, in yours is that you know they're they're made by car nuts for car nuts. You know they're uh, they're not 
for people who are actually researching and looking how to, to buy a car and what's the best car available at the current time. And, and that's what your channel really caters for. Um, and because a lot of these guys, as you said, you know, they, they get flown over to all these special press events. They get paid, you know, put up in first, star, first class hotels, five star hotels, I should say, fly first class, all that sort of stuff. Uh, so to get an unbiased review on a car is really almost impossible uh, from that point because if they start saying something bad about them, the, they don't get invited back anymore. Would that well, be accurate? <laughs> well, that would be beyond accurate. There's, um, there's a cascade of events that happens. Just to fill you in yeah. about being a motoring journalist, if you are a motoring journalist, you spend a third of your life overseas, I guess, if you're, mm-hmm. if you're an A-lister, what I would call an A-list motoring journalist, and you travel there uh, on junkets that are basically funded by the car companies, each individual car maker. For example, if there is a launch of a new C-class Mercedes-Benz, it might be held in Barcelona. You'll get flown there business class. You'll stay five-star. You'll put on three or four kilos while you're away because nobody needs three three-course meals every day, but yet that's what is supplied. There'll be a gift and uh, there won't be any explicit chat about please say only nice things about our car. But if you say critical things about the car, you probably won't get invited back. And then if you keep doing that, there'll be that other commercial conversation we talked about earlier where there is a threat to uh, reduce or remove, uh, remove, sorry, advertising revenue from that outlet. And so that doesn't really motivate your average journalist who really just wants to go away and live the rock star lifestyle. It doesn't motivate that journalist to be entirely forthcoming for the audience. And to me, that's a form of corruption. You know, I talked uh, just the other day to Michael Packey, who is uh, Macquarie Media's chief federal politics correspondent. And when there's some big event on with the Prime Minister, for example, let's say he goes overseas and a bunch of the media travel with him on the Prime Ministerial plane. When that happens, those journalists who travel on the plane have to pay for their ticket to go on that event and they have to arrange their accommodation as well. So it's not as if the Prime Minister is in a position where he carries favour with the media by virtue of bunging on free this or free that. But the car industry does exactly this, and I think it's a disservice to the audience. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I've noticed um, looking at your your website is you will call that out and you will do a comparison of two different cars. The one that comes to my mind, and it's not that I'm biased and own a Mazda 3, but the one you did with comparing it against the, the Mercedes and you're comparing, compare, comparing the uh, Mazda Astina the top of the range one with the C-Class, I think it was Mercedes. Uh, and the difference that by the time you added all the extra components on to, to equal what the Mazda had for the Mercedes, it was, you know, uh, $12,000, $13,000 more at the end of the day for comparatively the same product. Absolutely. Um, and I, yeah. I think this distinction between products is something that occurs not only in the motoring domain, obviously. You could, although I don't know anything about this, you could do a... Uh, an objective comparison between a Prada handbag and some lesser handbag, I assume, and you could do the same thing with a pair of Jimmy Choo shoes or a pair of um, equivalent high heel shoes costing, you know, a fraction of the two grand or whatever you pay for the Jimmy Choo's. Uh, and I, I appreciate that there is 
cachet as well built into brands and that's hard to quantify uh, objectively. It's a subjective thing. You know, you could do uh, Omega Watch or Hublot Big Bang or something versus Casio G-Shock and I could prosecute an argument that in many ways the G-Shock might be superior because the time is more accurate. It doesn't need anything done to it over 10 years while the battery is still working. Uh, it's more rugged, things like that, right? So uh, I think with a car you have to combine both of those things, but there's more than enough emphasis already on the relative cachet points of Mercedes-Benz versus Mazda. What people don't understand, though, is that often when you pay that extra cash for the uh, for the big ticket item, you're getting less tangible car. And I think that's something that needs a little more oxygenation. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, yeah, very good points. So, so when you come to the, the process of deciding what an episode of your uh, YouTube channel is going to be about, how do you, what's the process involved there? And how much time is involved in getting the pre-production ready? Because I, I can pretty much guess watching what you do, you've spent a lot of time preparing the episode before you go into recording it. Um, so can you run us through how you do that for people who are thinking of going into this sort of space and doing YouTube videos and, um, and having a, a business from this? How, how do you go about it? Sure. Well, what I'd start thinking about is exactly the same thing I'd think about if I was a producer or a reporter on Channel 7 News. And I, I do a lot of work for Channel 7 still, and I'm familiar with that process. And the process is what's going to rate, okay? So what does your audience want to know about? That's the single overarching question that should uh, predominate all other considerations. Am I telling people about this because I'm just interested in it or is the audience going to care? And if the audience is going to care, then it's in. And then what you need to do, in my view, is you need to think about video as a medium as opposed to you just sitting there with your mates talking in the pub. So the, the, I guess the art of engagement is that Video can be funny and it can, it's a visual medium and the visuals that you include with your uh, talking head sort of podcast on, on YouTube, they're a tool for engagement as well. So my entire process is all about engagement. I look at the available topics in the sort of motoring news and current affairs domain and I think about the audience and I think about how those topics relate to the audience and what the audience needs to know and then how I can tweak the engagement so that they're not all getting narcolepsy five minutes in because that's <laughs> bad, you know. Um, and I'm, I'm reasonably happy with the results, you know. I, uh, I get an average watch time on my channel of about seven and a half minutes per video, which is reasonably high. Um, obviously, that's there are, there are many people who watch to the end, but there's a lot of people who go, no, that's not for me. I'm a car enthusiast, and they turn off almost straight away because car enthusiasts would want to hear more about, you know, unaffordable cars, Porsches and BMW M3s and things like that, whereas I tend to think about what's relevant to people who are actually spending money on cars now and confronted with that uh, that terrible prospect of having almost 300 car companies, uh, 300 cars from about 65 car companies to choose from and being confounded by that choice and how do you do it rationally and end up with the one you want. So, I tend to also be uh, solution-oriented. So at the end of the day, 
I need the audience to go, all right, that's how I'm going to do that. Or when I'm confronted with this situation, here's the countermeasure that I can deploy. Or Because the internet's a platform for the delivery of information or empowerment, and that, that's kind of what I focus on. Uh, there's a couple of tricks in broadcast I'll give you, though, because, mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of proto-YouTubers fail in this, and it's so obvious, but most people don't think about it. So when you think about your audience, I've got uh, 260,000 people a month watch my videos, but I never think about them collectively because there is no collective watching experience. People don't watch as a group. They watch as individuals and they watch television as individuals and listen to the radio as individuals. And this is one of the things that separates good hosts from bad hosts. You don't say, g'day, guys. Hello, YouTube, all you guys. You don't say that. You say, you talk to you talk to individual people. You say, if you're in this position, here's what you need to do. Thank you for watching. I, I, you'd never say thank you all for watching because it's it, it's a jarring uh, it's a jarring way of doing it, and it basically pulls the person who's watching at the other end of the screen out of the metaphor that you're talking to them individually. Yeah, that's an exceptionally astute point, uh, and you've given me reflection on how I do things on that point as well. So, very, very cool, very, very good. So, uh, when you're producing these videos, there's a lot of things you've got to take into account. And we were we were talking earlier before we started doing the recording uh, about litigation and things you've got to be careful of, and and you are very up on that subject. So, can you expand a bit more about what you have to be careful of when you're recording, whether it's a podcast or whether it's a, a YouTube channel? Uh, what are the things we need to pay attention to, and where's some of the best places to find out what you can and can't do? It's really a bad idea to get sued for defamation, and if you are, as I am, outspoken about my views, you have to be very careful about how you deliver that outspoken message. Mm. And what I'd suggest is that all the training I've had, and as a host on Radio 2 UE here in Sydney, I've had to sit through hours of defamation training delivered by a specialist lawyer who's uh, who was privately retained to tell us all this stuff. And it's very interesting. Individuals can be defamed. And basically defaming someone is just to reduce someone else's estimation of them. Okay, so if I say you're a mongrel, I've technically defamed you. As long as somebody else is listening at the same time, you can't really defame uh, somebody in a face-to-face private conversation. That's not possible. So the, the, the critical thing is that those views you express to defame somebody else, they have to be received by at least one other person. And trust me, podcasting and YouTube is an excellent way of doing that. And it <laughs> lives forever. You can't cover it up. Uh, same on radio and television because that's all recorded by all and sundry and you can never take it back. So individuals can be defamed and some smaller organisations can be defamed as well and some charities can be defamed. But in general, large companies cannot be defamed. So you can say what you want about Telstra or Holden or Optus or any of any companies with more than 10 employees can't be defamed. They can't act against you anyway mm-hmm. under defamation law. Say products can't be defamed, for example, you're free to say what you want about them. There are a couple of uh, defences against defamation. So if somebody alleges that you have defamed them, uh, if what you've said is true, 
that is an absolute defense against defamation. So if you say person X is a pedophile, it's a really good idea if they are a pedophile. <laughs> yeah. Right? It would and, be. And that, that means convicted of pedophilia in a court of law, right? Yeah. Because that is an absolute get out of jail free. You have That's a defense against defamation. They are a pedophile. It's true. You're not guilty of defaming them. And the other one is honest personal opinion because what you've got to do, what defamation law attempts to do is it attempts to balance on one hand the rights for freedom of speech and the rights of an individual not to have their character brought into disrepute by virtue of what you say. So honest personal opinion is okay if you... <laughs> the, the, the real catch with honest personal opinion is that there are two things in reports. There are the facts and the comment. In other words, the opinion, right? So the sun rose today at 6.20 in the morning or something, who knows? That's a fact. That's just part of the report. But if you said, uh, for example, that a particular politician uh, had done something and that was just your opinion, you need to make it clear that it is your opinion. You have to say, well, in my view, he's an idiot. Or in my view, he's an idiot for doing that. I wouldn't just be launching straight into he's an idiot. Yeah, yeah, good distinction. Because you need to separate the facts from the comment. And in that regard, I'd, I'd suggest that if you are ever going to produce something iffy, I wouldn't just do it off the cuff. I'd script it or, or be extremely critical of it during the editing phase to make sure that the comment is clearly identified as your opinion. And then, of course, when their solicitors send you a nasty letter that, say, uh, that, that says words to the effect of, you said that about our client, that's completely outrageous. In your response, which should be vetted by your own solicitor if it comes to that, your response should never say, I'm terribly sorry, I didn't really mean it. Because if you say that, you lose the capacity to use the honest opinion defence. Mm, that's gold. <laughs> so and I'm, I'm thinking back to different YouTube channel uh, things I've watched, not yours, but other, other people, and boy, they have not done that. <laughs> so um, there's, there's a lot of uh, people out there who are floating in a very dangerous space right now. I think um, if they open themselves up to that way of talking on their on their YouTube channel. So, 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 um, yeah, sorry, I'd continue. Uh, yeah, I'd suggest that it's really uh, a victory for the freedom of speech to be critical. And you, further to this point, I guess, you don't really have to worry too much about offending someone. You're allowed to offend them. That's okay. You're allowed to say it. They're allowed not to like it. Particular groups don't have to be appeased. That's what the freedom of speech is. However, if you're going to be critical of anything, it's better to be critical of a corporation and a corporation's behaviour. It's much worse to be critical of the CEO. Because even if it's the CEO's decision, if you defame the CEO, he can act personally against you for defaming him. And in fact, one of the CEOs of the big banks has just done exactly that and sued someone successfully for defamation. Uh -huh. But if you're just critical of the National Australia Bank and their outrageous fees on their credit cards, you can say whatever you want about that. That's fine. Um, the other, So the thing I'd suggest is you're allowed to be... Um, you're allowed to to offer whatever viewpoint you uh, you want. That's what the freedom of speech is, and uh, and and frankly, I think 
some of these corporations need to be extremely critically assessed in the public domain because it's one of the few ways to bring them to heel because the ACCC, for example, doesn't appear to have the teeth to do it. So uh, I'd, I'd just be one step removed from criticising individual members of the board or executives because then the company can retain its lawyers to act on behalf of the individuals to proceed against you for defamation, which is a space that you really never want to get into. No, definitely not. Avoid at all costs. So I think those uh, that advice is golden. So for those who are thinking of going into that space, um, pay attention to what John has just said because it could save your bacon. Uh, but while we're on the subject of you know, laying something bare, let's just talk about the whole VW scandal because I know that's one of your uh, your subjects you've covered quite in depth. Um, and I'd just like to get your viewpoint again. I'm sure probably most people listening to this podcast, if they haven't heard about what's happened with, uh, with VW, uh, they must be living under a rock somewhere. But uh, I, I would suggest that it's something we could talk about briefly. So can you give us a bit of a background about what happened with, with VW? All right. So basically for several years now, Volkswagen has been cheating on its obligations to comply with emissions standards. And what that means is they took a decision at a very high level to uh, employ software in their vehicles that uh, was being colloquially called a defeat device. And what it does is it emits... 30 or 40 times the level of oxides of nitrogen coming out of the exhaust. Oxides of nitrogen are extremely bad for human beings. They're a respiratory tract irritant. Um, in, in low concentrations, in medium concentrations, they build up fluid on the lungs. And uh, in high concentrations, they can kill you. So there's a good reason for having emissions control standards, particularly for chemicals like oxides of nitrogen. And Volkswagen elected, in my view, uh, you could prosecute uh, a rock-solid case that that company took the decision in $11 million, in 11 million of its vehicles to prioritise profit over human health, which any way you cut that is morally reprehensible. And uh, it's had some far-reaching effects. And for a company like um, like Volkswagen, it's almost inconceivable, you know, because all other automotive product scandals, defective product scandals, they stem from design flaws that made it into production and then sometimes attempts uh, consequentially to sweep it under the rug. This is completely different. This is a, a willful decision to... Uh, to basically break the law and place profit over human health, which is terrible. Ab absolutely, and it was say it was it was known from the outset uh, by many people up the food chain on in at VW that this was going on, but yet it was still allowed to continue. And uh, it's just it's yeah it is as you said the word diabolical. <laughs> this is it's been happening, um, and I feel for people who have bought uh, a VW Golf for a or a Skoda or a low-end Audi over the last, uh, you know, what has it been happening for how many years? Um, it's been going on for four or five years yeah. now. It's, <clears throat> excuse me. It's a long time. And basically, there's, for example, there's a state called Lower Saxony in Germany and they own 20% of Volkswagen shares. This would be like, for example, Western Australia owning... 20% of BHP and requiring a dividend from BHP to keep the cops and the fire brigade and the hospitals and the road systems running, etc. Right, right. And that's exactly what Lower Saxony does. They've got 20% of the seats on the board of directors and they're facing an extreme budgetary crisis on the 
roads, hospitals, etc. front because the, the dividend payment from Volkswagen is going to be extremely compromised as a result of uh, sales that have evaporated and profit that simply will not be made because they're going to have to spend $10 billion in compensation. Yeah, yeah. And look, I think the repercussions just they they go on and on and on uh, through the whole industry, and not just the car industry, but um, as you say, it affects um, people in, in a different way as well. So, and look, good good luck to those who have one of those sort of vehicles and they're trying to sell it. They'll you know they're uh, they've just had a big dip in their potential sale price of their secondhand vehicle uh, when when people are aware of this sort of stuff. So. Uh, and that look again. This comes back to why I like your channel and why it's refreshing to watch because you call this stuff out, whereas most others uh, very rarely go near it because they they're compromising their uh, their income from what they're getting or how they're getting paid or endorsed by these other car companies. So congratulations on that, John. Thank you for doing that. Well, that's a, it's a pleasure, Ed. And just so you don't think I'm a conspiracy theorist on the issue of the advertising. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very interesting, you know, Morris Blackburn is uh, one of the law firms and uh, it's, it's handling the class action in Australia and uh, there's another one and off the top of my head I just can't bring their name to mind. Anyway, this second law firm that's launching a class action in Australia against Volkswagen attempted to get its ads placed on talkback radio on the major networks and not one of those networks would take the ad for the class action because it would compromise their commercial arrangements with Volkswagen, right? There and you go. Yeah. Volkswagen spends, I don't know, tens of millions of dollars in advertising. They're the second biggest, uh, the car industry is the second biggest advertising sector on radio and uh, those ads are not playing on talkback radio all around Australia right now because none of those networks would want to upset the Volkswagen advertising Apple car. Yeah, there you go. That's just... They're yeah, that, that, that's it's a terrible way of doing it, but unfortunately, it's it's so common, and that's where honest journalism uh, does not seem to rise to the top as much as it should. But um, with with YouTube and and your freedom to to say what you like within the restrictions of what we just spoke about earlier, um, then that's a fantastic platform. So it it comes to the question. How do you monetize your website? Because if you're not getting advertising from car companies, well, you may be getting some from some car companies. But from what I've seen on your uh, website, you've got Google AdSense ads that are on there. So that's like I said, that's one way that you monetize the site. Uh, and you also you've got your your service. So can you explain how this works for you? How what's the the monetization model for Auto Expert? Yeah, sure. This is this is critical, right? If you decide you're going to tell the truth and you know you're going to be uh, not in the running for any advertising revenue from the car industry, you have to come up with another commercial solution. And my commercial solution is that I use the integrity of my reports, essentially my own integrity, to assist buyers to make the right choice. And as discussed earlier, nearly 300 different vehicles you can buy. It's a challenging environment, even if you know what category of car you want. For example, if you want to buy a Corolla-sized car, there's 30 different options. So it's, and most people can only name four or five. Mm. And in that environment, I provide assistance free of charge to people who want to choose the right car. And if they want to proceed, I've got a commercial arrangement with a car brokerage, which is basically a buying service uh, it's basically what you get when you combine a buying service and a finance company. Uh, 
and basically the procurement guys in the brokerage can go out and get a cheap, for example, Mazda 3 SB25 if that's the car you want. So my advice to buyers is if, if it's an SB25 that suits you best, go out and have a test drive, talk about the uh, cost of that car with the dealer exactly the way you want that car, so in exactly the spec that you want, and then you know you can refer your inquiry to me, and I'll get the procurement guys onto it, and they'll try and beat that price because they're two blokes sitting in an office in Sydney, and they just they're on the phone buying cars all day long, so they've got bulk buying power and specialist contacts inside the retail end of the business, and basically uh, they come up with a cheaper price for the car, saving the the customer thousands. And uh, and we get a fee, which I have a revenue sharing arrangement with. I get a fee out of the brokerage for um, delivering those successful transactions. Fantastic! So everybody wins. The um, well, the car company selling the car to start with. Um, there's the brokerage for the the guys who are getting, you know, maybe providing the finance and and selling the car, and then you get a cut of that. So. Uh, if the end user who's purchasing the car is still getting a better deal than they would if they were just going into the dealership and dealing with the very honest salespeople, then <laughs> you, <laughs> then it's a win-win for everybody. I mean, I don't like using the word win-win often because quite often win-win doesn't exist, but uh, it, it does seem that it's equitable for, for what you do. So that's fantastic. And how often do you actually get a better deal? I mean, do you have percentages or things you can share? Like, is it is it pretty common that you, you do manage to get a better deal than just someone who's walked in and tried to crunch the deal? Yeah, absolutely. We, um, we do dozens of transactions a month and those people are not transacting because they'd get a better deal if they went directly to the dealership. Um, I'm on the record on my website saying that we save buyers more than $100,000 in total uh, compared with the recommended driveway price of those cars every month. So uh, it, it is fairly easy to do. I mean, if you listen to a car dealer long enough, and I have had the misfortune to go to several dealer conferences, which are held at places like the Palazzo Versace Hotel on the Gold Coast, and everyone's wearing bad Armani and dripping in Rolexes and drinking $15 beers, talking about how tough it is out there selling cars. <laughs> um, yeah. So there is a, a great deal of cash built into uh, buying a car at a car dealership and that might not all be just margin on the new car. It might be a thousand bucks worth of margin on, uh, for example, the rust protection that you don't need and the paint protection that you don't need. It might be uh, charging you double the going rate for window tinting just <laughs> the way we can. Yeah. Um, it, it might also be charging you two and a half thousand dollars for uh, whatever they they call it dealer delivery fee but it's a misnomer because they don't actually deliver the car you come in and pick it up and as far as I can tell it's the cost of getting the car from a distribution yard nearby to the dealership and then cleaning it up and putting a full tank of fuel in it so it's the most expensive joyride on a truck detail and full tank of gas you're ever going to buy so <laughs> There's, there's a huge amount of profit built into the sale of new cars and all we do is we don't rip dealers off, we just uh, we just engineer a better price and it's a fairer deal for everyone. The dealer doesn't go ahead with the transaction if he's going out the back door on the deal because, you know, they've got a solid philosophical position on that, which is we don't make a loss on any of our cars. 
Yeah, exactly. So they're not going to do the deal through you and through your brokers and uh, if they're not making money. So that's that's a good thing. I distinctly remember because it was about exactly this time last year that I bought the Mazda and I was sitting in the dealership. And I, well, going back in time in 1985, the very first job I actually ever had out of high school was working for a Mazda dealership in the uh, sale, uh, service department and spare parts department. And we're at the uh, department was looked straight out onto the sales floor so i would often get to witness <laughs> the sales guys uh, you know dealing their stuff and then they'd be telling us about it after so i had a very 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 early um, understanding of how car sales people worked <laughs> uh, so I, I was pretty protected as i went through and i think managed to do okay don't know how i did on the mazda compared to what you would get i'm not even going to go there now because you know you might tell me i could have got you that for a couple of thousand dollars less ed but um, I, I think i did all right but I, I certainly remember the going and sitting in the next room to get the you know the paint protection and the rust protection and i was saying no 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 tinting that's twice as much as tinted car will do so nah. <laughs> and the, the poor girl was looking at me like uh okay so i sort of went out without doing anything extra other than getting some free floor mats, which were $250. So. But um, it's a fun game, and a lot of people hate it. So I can, I can certainly see why your uh, business and what you offer is really taken up by a lot of people because it's a, other than moving house, it's one of those horrible experiences that you don't want to go through if you can avoid. Well, so getting a new car, Ed, is fantastic. You know, that moment when you're in the new car and you're driving in traffic and you park it in the driveway and you're looking at it, that's all good. That's fantastic. But actually buying it, the transactional part of it, just sucks. It really does. It's confrontational and stressful. And all of the lip service that I hear from car companies about the buying experience and how we want people to feel in the dealership, I keep um, I keep saying to myself, Soto Voce, at... Uh, press conferences when that sort of thing is discussed, I keep going, are you guys smoking crack? It's not like that at all. <laughs> People feel backed up against the wall because they know that the car dealer is operating in a, in a, in a superior position. I mean, they're match fit. They're fighting the battle on their turf. They know the rules. They've got the sophisticated strategies and you're still trying to be polite. I mean, it's it's absurd. And if you go in with a trade-in, there's, there's this thing, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book on it. It's called Thin Slicing, right? People mm. make complex decisions based on a very small amount of information. So car salesmen might not have read Gladwell's book, but they all use thin slicing to get, get you across the line. If they can, if they know, if you drop in, in the conversation that you're at their dealership because the last dealer tried to rip you off on the trading, what that salesman will do is pump up the trade-in on your car to the extent that he can and he'll try and get the profit back elsewhere by saying, look, we've, we've got this awesome trade-in for you here and maybe it's four grand more than the other bloke offered uh, based on what your comments were about the trade-in. And then what they're going to do is they're going to say something like, unfortunately, Mazda doesn't let us discount the car anymore and we've got to sell it to you for this price. That's that's the boss will kill me otherwise, but blah. And they'll try and get you to thin slice on that trade-in price as that's the solution to your problem. The other bloke tried to rip you off. We're being great guys and they don't know that you're – they're just rob – you don't know, sorry, that they're just robbing from Peter to pay Paul on the issue of – copying it a bit on the trade-in but pumping it back up on the new car. And if you throw finance into the mix, then 
you know, how do you know if you're getting a good deal on the finance or not on the spot? It's just not possible. If they're making another three grand out of you on the finance, then it's easy to be as generous as the proverbial um, on the new car, isn't it? Yeah, a- absolutely. And look, most I say most people are complete amateurs when they come in. They they may maybe the first time they've ever bought a new car. Uh, even if they bought multiple ones, typically there's a space of you know three to five years between they buy a new car for probably the average person. And uh, they, you know, they're not trained, as you say, match fit. They're not ready to deal with what the these guys have to, to throw at them. So they typically will not come out on top. Uh, and that's what the dealerships bank on. And that's what, why my dealership is building a massive, massive multi-million dollar new building next to its old building right now. It's not because... <laughs> you look at all the chrome and the glass. When you're in the dealership, you look around at the chrome and the glass and all of those features that are there and it's you who's paying for that. Now, nobody's suggesting, and certainly I'm not suggesting, that the car company and the dealer should not make a profit. Of course, they absolutely. They're providing a service. But what they shouldn't be doing is uh, is profiting excessively, ripping you off to the extent that they can rip you off. And if you're a woman like that, we've got some interesting social dynamics in Australia. We've got a whole lot of women typically who have had to come to grips and grapple with this situation for the first time because they've recently become single, you know, they've become separated or divorced and they've got to cross this bridge. And you'd think that a car dealer might offer some sympathy in this situation, but au contraire, it's just often an opportunity to make even more money by noticing someone who's less likely to think that they're being taken advantage of than somebody else who's maybe a bloke who's bought five cars previously or something. Oh, absolutely. And so, look, one of the places I used to work and it'll remain uh, nameless (laughs) is that uh, someone would come in. Typically, say, the females were more of the target than the men because often uh, it happens that men seem to be more in, in tune with their cars. Um, anyway, someone would come in with a slipping fan belt, you know, and they'd have the charge light on in their car, and they'd get a new battery, a new alternator, blah 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 blah, rather than just tightening up of the fan belt. Um, so they'd come out spending two or three hundred dollars, not needing to, and so that sort of stuff goes on. I'm not suggesting that's uh, something that happens all over the place, but it is. It is a more common than probably most people would like to think. So you've just got to be aware, awareness and having the knowledge of what's going on. I think that that's that empowerment that your site gives. It not only does it offer the the uh, chance to deal with you and your your guys to get a better deal, but even if they did nothing else but watch your videos, I think they're still better armed than they would if they just went in without watching any any information. So I think learning the rules of the game, anytime you're uh, you're stepping onto an unfamiliar playing field, it's it's a great idea to skill yourself up. And one of the exciting things about the modern era, if you like, with YouTube and the fact that those things are not uh, prohibitively expensive to produce as they would have been 20 years ago, uh, is that the information is at your fingertips. So it's never been easier to empower yourself for different situations. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a good little segue before we end up uh, finishing up on this podcast is just a question for those who are about to produce videos and everyone has a different answer to this but uh, what is it that you actually use to produce your videos do you do you have really high tech gear do you do you go low tech you green screening things and so can you give us a bit of a, a bit of a feedback on what equipment you use and uh, how much you've sort of roughly spent to get 
that production happening? Sure. Well, for the studio stuff, I'm a bit of a freak because of my TV background. So I did build a green screen studio in my garage. Okay. And uh, so it's got a it's got a, about a three meter by three meter pop up green screen, and then I've got four, five lights. Um, no correction, six lights now. I've gone all high tech with six lights. Anyway, uh, so there's a green screen and a lighting setup, and then I've got uh, a Rode NTG3 uh, shotgun mic about uh, foot, uh, about a meter and a half away from me, maybe a meter away, just out of the shot. Mm-hmm. Proximity is everything with microphones. The closer you can get them, the better because it improves the signal-to-noise ratio. And then I shoot it on a Canon um, uh, Canon XF105 camera, which is a, a tiny little handheld camcorder that's um, the minimum requirement for BBC Dockers. It's 50 megabits a second, and it's uh, sitting on a tripod perpetually set up in my uh, garage slash studio. So... Uh, that's the basic setup. I cut it all on a 27-inch iMac and um, use the Adobe Creative Cloud for the for the editing and the graphics. So that's all a reasonably slick um, setup by uh, by many standards, I'm sure. However, I would say that you could get just as good a result with um, a third of the money. You know, you could shoot it on a DSLR. You could you could cut it on um, on iMovie if you had to. Mm. Uh, so you know, I, I wouldn't. Unless you've got that techo sort of background, I wouldn't be too obsessed with the gear because it is possible to get a great result with um, for the studio type stuff. Uh, you could spend a thousand dollars and get a great result. You're not just an average result. Ninety nine percent of YouTube is crap. So if you want to be in the top one percent, just make something that's not crap. If you want to be in the top tenth of that top one percent, then spend a thousand bucks and learn how to use the gear. And quite often, people spend the big bucks, but they don't learn how to use the gear. And I, yeah, I, go, yeah. I go back to my central point, which is that the story is everything. So the video is an opportunity for you to connect personally with one other person. And the hardest thing in that entire process is the skill set that you use as a presenter to look at a camera, envisage a person, and then engage with them in that one-way exchange. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As I say, the the equipment is not everything. It is the, the story is everything, uh, and you could use cheaper equipment to get the same message across and outdo someone who's spent ten thousand dollars on equipment who doesn't tell a good story. And the story wins every time. So yeah, agree one hundred percent. But that that's good for people to know that the. I mean, you, you can get in. I've just bought some green screen gear off eBay and uh, some cameras for doing some stuff with my wife, and it was sort of under fifteen hundred dollars for some pretty decent quality. Um, gear, so the cost of all that sort of stuff has come down quite a lot. So it is it is uh, accessible to people who want to get in without um, breaking the bank. So thank you for sharing what you you do there, John. So um, anything, any last thoughts before we finish up on the podcast that you would like to uh, share with listeners who are thinking of buying a new car? Uh, obviously, visit your website. Oh yeah, obviously everyone must. Visit my website, autoexpert.com.au. You're mad if you don't. It's the miracle cure. For, it's not the miracle cure for insomnia. Um, the, uh, the main, I guess the main thrust of it, the main thing I'd like to say, not so much about buying a car, but if you are thinking about doing that, that YouTube thing, there's a real danger that you'll think you're not good enough. You know, for whatever reason, I mean, I train all these people up on the media all the time about how to present and all of that stuff. And the main impediment to good presentation is you don't think you're good enough, so you try and be better. 
don't try and be a better version of you because it will seem disingenuous and unauthentic. Just be you. Be authentically you. There won't be another better version of you on offer. And the and then in post-production, after you've got it all together, don't cut it all up and then say, you know what, that's not good enough. Just realise that you're on a continuum of improvement and in order to be on this continuum of improvement, you have to start at a relatively low point to where you're ultimately going to go. So that means cut it up and post it and then look at it two weeks later and go, you know what, I'm never going to do it like that again, I'm going to do it like this and use all of the preceding not nearly good enough bits as motivation to get better because if you don't do that, if you let the quest for perfection get in the way of just doing it and putting it up there, then you're really not ever going to achieve anything. Yeah, supremely wise words and uh, that's I try to live by that myself. And so when I started podcasting back in 2007, my productions were not as good as they are now and probably ones in two years won't be as, will be better than the ones I'm doing now. So it is a constant case of learning and improving and, and tweaking. Uh, so fantastic wise words for those who are going to go into the YouTube channel making game. So uh, thank you once again, John, for giving us your wise words and your time. Much appreciated. It's a pleasure, Ed. Thanks for the opportunity. I've enjoyed our little chat. Yes, likewise. And uh, I will be posting this on Facebook and LinkedIn and various other places for people to go and have a listen. So uh, thank you for listening and we will speak to you again soon. You've been listening to The Business Marketing Show. You can find us at businessmarketingshow.com on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher.